Gratitude That's my everyday What's up, all you beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee. Today's guest, really special one. His name's Khalil Rafati, and he is the founder and owner of an amazing smoothie and acai bowl, uh, natural health and nutrition company called Sun Life Organics. Um, really, really successful entrepreneur, but something that's really special about this man's journey um, is that he was a heroin addict, cocaine addict, um, living literally on Skid Row in LA, which is like this, you know, row of just homeless population. And he basically um, was down and out in the deep, dark depths of his own hell. Um, and he climbed his way out and figured out a way to become the creator of his life rather than the victim. And in this podcast, we really discuss his journey from being down and out. Um, and he has some crazy stories of when he was doing a lot of drugs um, into his journey of sobriety and then his uh, deeper connection with God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, the, the greater intelligence that is this experience of life. Um, so he's got a really great perspective. He's traveled the world sourcing amazing ingredients for his company and his smoothies. And he's really focused on bringing healing and love and inspiration to um, the public and really focused um, like myself on helping to raise the level of consciousness and heal the world so that we can show up and really enjoy this experience together. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to sit down with me and have this amazing conversation. I know you guys will get a lot out of it. If you don't already, please subscribe to the channel. And if you enjoy this podcast or it resonates with you, or you think somebody else might be impacted by listening, please share it with them. And uh, it would be a huge, huge help and support of the podcast. If you just take a few seconds to write a positive five-star review, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, that goes a long way in helping me grow the channel and uh, grow the audience and reach uh, more people sharing this, uh, these stories of, of love, inspiration, transformation, and connection, and exploring the unanswerable questions of the universe. And if you want to support this podcast uh, financially, um, there is now a way to do so. Um, I started a Supercast premium channel um, for $7 a month. You get access to all the original episodes. And what I'm doing now is doing extended episodes. Um, so with Khalil, um, if you are a premium subscriber, there's going to be an extra five to 10 minutes at the end where we dive deeper into um, the question of what is your secret to the universe? It's something you're not going to want to miss, um, especially with this episode. So if you want these extended episodes, make sure you go to Supercast. There is a link in the show notes and become a premium member. It is just $7 a month. It, you know, it's not free to uh, produce these podcasts. And um, I have a team behind the scenes and really looking for that financial support so I can continue to grow this thing and reach a wider audience. And for all of you that have been listening since the beginning and following my journey, just so thankful for the support. Um, and so there's an option to do that. And um, I would really, really appreciate it. There's a lot of other cool premium content I'm doing as well. There's these quick hit motivational weekly, like two minute um, inspirational episodes I'm doing um, for premium members. I'm also giving you an opportunity if you are a premium member to 
drop into a live podcast. Um, so for instance, if me and Khalil did a live podcast and you're a premium member, you could actually register and log in um, while we're recording and actually interact with the guests, ask questions and hear it live. Something that's really cool. I'm going to be putting together the first one for that very soon. And so you have to be a premium member to get access to that. And um, I'm going to continue to create amazing content for y'all. So I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. Um, if you have any guests that you'd like me to talk to or discuss these unanswerable questions with, let me know. Um, I really appreciate the support. And also I want to share about the Heart Collective because it's something I'm really passionate about, um, serving this former athlete community. Um, and really excited about if you're not an athlete, we actually have this content strategy we're developing for non-athletes as well. Uh, they're called master classes, which are webinars with experts, thought leaders, and uh, change makers in a wide variety of different topics. And we have one or two a month. If that's something you're interested in joining and getting a sneak peek behind the content and providing this former athlete community through the Heart Collective, go check it out. Go to theheartcollective.com, H-A-R-T, theheartcollective.com. Um, there's a button on the main page for non-athletes. Go uh, put your email in there, um, add it to our mailing list so that you can stay up to date with all the amazing experiences that we're providing. And I'm going to actually continue to uh, work on different things to bring in the wider audience so that we can all really help support each other on this mission of making the world, excuse me, the world a better place. And if you are a former athlete listening to this and you feel disconnected or, you know, really struggling to feel supported or seen by someone who understands what the experience is like transitioning out of professional sports. Um, I'd love to share with you more about what the heart collective is all about. Um, really passionate about, um, really providing the, the safety and container for us to grow and reach higher levels of awareness together. And we are hosting a couple of retreats this summer. Uh, really excited about those. Um, a lot of good things in the works. So if you are an athlete, reach out to me directly or go to the heart collective and put your information in, uh, would love to get you involved. And I also want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Sarah and her company grow Motley. She has launched out of live beta into, um, into the world and, uh, really excited about the journey that she's on. And I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Um, grow Motley is a fully remote job platform globally. So if you are a small to medium sized business, or if you're like me, um, who starts to have all these projects you're working on and you need to start building a team out of your own, go check out growmotely.com. You, you know, simply as a business or an individual looking to grow a team, all you got to do is create a profile. It's free and you start posting jobs. And there is a huge um, network of um, people looking for work, amazing talent from all over the world. And the cool thing about hiring people from all over the world now in the world that we're in, um, you know, going fully remote is you can actually um, access, you know, some really good talent for a little bit cheaper price point, which I think is really cool, especially if you're just starting. Um, I know it's really hard to start growing a team. It gets pretty expensive. So go check that out. And if you are looking for work um, and you want to create a life like me and Sarah, where our biggest ideal is freedom and creating the life that we want to live and working from home, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to do that now. You can really help um, and be, be a part of a team that's really doing good work in the world and create the life that you want to live remotely. So if you're looking for work and looking to create the life of your dream, dreams, go to growmotely.com, check it out. And, um, yeah, what else do we got? Man, I just can't, I'm just so grateful right now. I cannot say how much gratitude I have for all the support. Um, I really appreciate everybody that's listening and all the feedback and all the love. Um, really just trying to, to grow myself and uh, continue to, to do the good work in the world. And, um, yeah, thank you so, so much for the support. 
And without further ado, here is my good friend, Khalil Rafati. Enjoy the episode. Khalil, what's up, brother? How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. I'm really stoked uh, about the opportunity to have a conversation with you and share your story. Um, yeah, the first time I met you, I was at Sun Life Organics, just opened up in Austin. And I had been to the one in Malibu, really loved it. Loved the the uh, acai bowls and the smoothies and just the, the health and just the energy of the place is so amazing. And I remember I went there the first time sitting outside and you walked in and I don't know how we sparked up a conversation, but you were just so talkative and friendly. And then you end up saying like, Oh yeah, I'm the owner of this place. And it like blew my mind. Cause I know it's a really, I mean, it's continuing to grow and I'm excited to talk about uh, your, your business journey into starting that. Um, and you, you immediately dropped into like this, this energy healing session you did and dropped right in. And I was like, this guy is awesome. He's just dropping right in. And so I'm excited to, um, you know, after that conversation, kind of learning more about you, you've written a book and finding out that you've really dealt with drug addiction. You were living on Skid Row in LA, Mm -hmm. uh, addicted to heroin, cocaine. And so I think, you know, that's kind of where I want to start. And I want to, I want you to share your journey of going from there to becoming this very vibrant, successful entrepreneur with this amazing company. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess just to jump right in, um, because I think what, what typically piques most people's interest in my journey is kind of like the, um, what do you call that? Like the clickbait of, you know, if you, if you Google my name, it's always like junkie becomes millionaire or like homeless man now millionaire. And like, it's, you know, it's cool. It's flattering. I'm grateful to have anybody talking about me after everything I've been through, but that just leaves so much of what's important out. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it's great. It's great to be, you know, financially successful and to have financial independence. It's great to be sober, but the, the misconception is that, you know, at, at, at very, what I thought was a very stage late, late stage in life. It's not at all, but you know, at 33 years old to become sober and then, oh yeah. And then he like opened this business and he became a millionaire and which is not true by any shape, you know, by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and then also it leaves room for people to do what they typically do is go, oh yeah, well his fucking family must've had money or like, I'm sure he like married some rich woman or, you know, there, there's always that like, you know, the, the, that type of people that want to make excuses. And there's that whole saying, like you can have excuses or you can have an amazing life. Yeah. But yeah you, a lot of people playing but, the victim, right. And then they look at yeah. someone who actually figured it out or took, had the courage to really show up and do the hard work. And then they just make excuses because they're in that victim mentality. And everybody's, I, I truly believe that's the first kind of awakening everybody has to go through is going from victim to taking control and ownership of, I can create the life that I want to live. And it's not easy. It's a really hard decision and a hard awakening to go through, but that's really the first one. And then on that, once you build that foundation of, I can create the life that I want to live, that's when the journey really begins. So let's fill in the blanks. What was it like when you were 33 in that moment, really, I guess, down and out, really, you know, addicted to drugs, life. I'd, tell us about how your life was and, and what was the initial kind of awakening that made you go sober? I mean, it, uh, it, God, it was, 
I was living in hell. I mean, I was, I was, first of all, I was 109 pounds. I was a walking corpse. My teeth were falling out of my head. I had open sores all over my face, all over, I mean, everywhere covering my body. Um, I was doing anything and everything I could to get money for drugs, you know, from the basic, you know, panhandling to letting guys do stuff to me or whatever I had to do in order to have money to continue getting high because I had just gotten to that point of no return where, you know, I didn't have anything to fall back on. My mom was living below the level of poverty and my father and I did not have a relationship. And even if we did have a relationship, my father's a very angry, proud, arrogant, violent Muslim man who in his own words said, had you shown up in that condition, I would have literally murdered you with my own hands to stop your poisoning of our bloodline. So I couldn't call my dad. I couldn't call my mom. I couldn't call any of the bridges that I had burned, all of the ex-girlfriends, all of the people, you know, I, I like, like most junkies, I was behaving like a monster and doing anything and everything to put dope in my veins. So what was it like? It was my, my life was a wilderness of pain, um, in and out of jail, in and out of the ER, um, in the end, having seizures, um, open abscesses, sharing needles with people that had AIDS and hepatitis C, um, just, just ugly, ugly, disgusting, horrible, horrible existence. What was the, what was the process like to get to the point when you were sober? Is that like a, did it kind of fall off the cliff pretty quickly or was this like a slow journey into the deeper depths of hell, so to speak? Mm, So the psychosis, the psychosis began to get so intense and then other things started happening, which I would imagine maybe a more grounded, realistic person would just say that was all psychosis, but there was psychosis. And then there was other things that were happening that to this day, I don't know if they were real. Um, I hope they weren't, but just like being in these like crack hotels and like, like literally fucking shadows and demons and like these clawed creatures like coming at me. And like, there's, there's one, there's one particular situation. And I talk about it in my book where I'm in this crack hotel in Inglewood and I had been flashing, I had just pawned some stuff and I had hundreds and, um, it was from eight months earlier when I, I still had a girlfriend and we still kind of had a hustle going, we were pawning her family's heirlooms diamonds and, you know, necklaces and whatever. And her family, thank God, um, hired a guy named Warren Boyd. They called him the cleaner to come and extract her from me and literally like drug her and sequester her and keep her away from me because I was just, I mean, we, we were going to die for sure. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to pawn the rest of those jewels. I had hundreds. I was flashing them on the street on like Sentry and Sepulveda and like basically trying to show these like, you know, prostitutes and crack dealers that like, look, I've got money. I'm powerful. Like, give me what I want. Just like a fucking moron. And they had followed me back to my little crack hotel and I was buying shit through the window. I was buying Coke from them and shooting it. And I got into this like, you know, horrible place of like chest pain and seizures and kept falling on the floor. It just kept shooting more. 
And these things, these like demonic creatures, clawed creatures, like just came out and fucking attacked me. Now, look, for people who are familiar with psychosis and shooting coke and smoking crack, people talk about the carpet crawl and trying to smoke Parmesan cheese or whatever. There, there is that component. But this was this was a physical interaction with entities that were not fake in my opinion. Mm. And the only, the only thing that was different about this and like looking out the window and seeing cops outside, which is something that like crackheads will often imagine that there's cops outside in the morning when I came to and was just beat up, I was really scratched up. And I remember going into the bathroom and the shower curtain and the, the pole had been taken off. Cause I was like trying to use it to defend myself. I remember turning around and when I turned around I saw on my back all of these bizarre, like three pronged claw marks everywhere. Holy and so I'm like turning, I'm turning around and I'm looking and I'm trying to reach them with my hand. This and is something that you could have done yourself. Of, of course. Yeah. And then I went and I searched the room to see, was there any like mattress springs springing out or like, what the fuck did that to my, to my back? Because self-harm was something that I, I, you know, I would get into like the picking and the cutting and using cuticle clippers. And if you look, you can see how right there, a piece of my nose is missing right there. Yeah. I actually, I actually cut that out with cuticle clippers in a state of psychosis because I had shot so much Coke for so many days in a row that I thought bugs and worms were like crawling in and out of my ears and my nose. So, um, I'm sorry. I hope I'm not freaking your listeners out, but no, yeah, I'm just being honest. No, this is I'm incredible to get honest. a perspective on, you know, what, you know, a junkie actually goes through. And this is really uh, enlightening to me. And I'm really interested just to hear how you didn't kill yourself, how you did get out of that. And I want to talk a little bit more about, we can kind of circle back to the, the, the spirits and the demonic things attacking you and how that um, connection to, maybe spirit realms and your understanding of that later on, but how in that kind of state, what was the, the catalyst that just made you decide to, to wake up and say, I don't want to be like this anymore. Was it a slow process? Was it like, uh, you know, I'm, I need to get out of here. I'm going to kill myself. What was the mental story that was going on in your head at the no. time? You know, I had, I had done an intentional overdose about a year earlier back when I was still with my girlfriend. And at that time we were living in hotels and we were running around with this pretty, pretty famous, recognizable actor with some pretty, you know, really bad um, drug issues like myself. And she had taken off with him one time on the back of his motorcycle. And um, I, being in that pathetic, insecure, terrified state of like, you know, oh my God, my girl just took off with this guy who, you know, look, let's be honest, was much taller than me, super successful, much better looking than me, um, a real threat to me at that time. And she left with him. Now, she claims nothing happened, but whatever, that's a whole nother story. But in that state, I went back into the guy's house that we were getting high at and um, took an intentional overdose of a, just a fucking massive amount of heroin and cocaine at the same time. I did end up flatlining. Um, that was a harrowing journey in itself. That's all in my book where I talk about that very specifically of actually dying, of actually taking my life 
right? Mm -hmm. And what and what ended up happening? So, sorry, let me try to be more concise. Um, overdoses, hospitalizations in and out of county jail and county LA county jail is worse than most prisons. So the shit that happens to you inside those places are, you don't even want to know. Um, I do go into some detail in my book and, um, the guy that was helping me edit it had me take a lot out and he still wanted me to take more out. And I said, no, this is my fucking truth. This is what happened. And I got to leave it in. And he felt that it was too polarizing, that it was going to scare certain people away. Mm. I don't know, man. If you, if you look on Amazon, there's over 400 reviews where people disagree strongly and gave it a five-star review and really enjoyed the shit out of it. So it so is what about it is. Truth that resonates with people, right? When you speak the truth, there's no, you have to, there's some energy about it. Right. And if you try and, you know, walk around the truth, then people can feel that energetically. So when you really show yeah. up and speak the truth, I mean, it resonates with people on that level because it is your story. I want to go back to the, the time you flatlined. Was there, was there any out-of-body experience, any kind of spiritual experience, any kind of leaving your body into... 100%. Whatever yeah. that is. But tell, tell us a little bit yeah. about what that experience was like. Not, uh, you know, I, I believe when we get hit by a car and we die or we accidentally drown in a surfing accident, whatever, I, I totally believe, totally believe that there is this white light experience and, you know, you, you see your dead relative. I believe in all of that. And I feel it in my heart that all of that is true. Mm-hmm. However, if you intentionally take your life, which I did, um, there was no white light experience. It was, I was very much aware that I had died. I was very much above my body. I was watching the man whose house it was, um, this guy named Mintern. He eventually died as well. But watching him trying to pack my, I didn't know what he was doing. He told me later, he was trying to pack my neck with ice cream and ice to keep my brain alive. Um, But from up above, it looked very weird and I couldn't understand what was going on. And I definitely saw paramedics coming in. I knew they were paramedics and I definitely was like, Oh fuck. Oh fuck. I'm dead. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I just, I just kept saying that to myself in this dark, cold, scary, I guess maybe purgatory of a place where I, I, I knew I was dead. And I just kept saying like, Oh my God, Oh my God, I'm dead. Oh my God, I'm dead. Oh my God, I'm dead. And I just kept watching and just like, Oh fuck, this is terrible. Um, I didn't understand the defibrillator that, that came to me later. Um, I do remember feeling an intense, like real intense pain here. Um, obviously after I came to and stabilized, I realized that was a defibrillator. I do remember opening my eyes several times and hearing them say, I think we got him. I think we got him. And then I remember just like sinking back down and them like, shit, we're losing him again. And then, you know, and so in hindsight, I put it all together backwards that that was a defibrillator, that they were getting my heart started again. Um, I wasn't breathing for about eight to 10 minutes. I don't know exactly. Um, that guy, Mintern, claims that he saved my life or my brains by packing my neck with ice and ice cream. I don't know if that's true. I'm not a fucking doctor or paramedic, but um, really, really intense experience. And uh, I would, I would advise anyone to not 
ever intentionally take your life. Just don't do it ever, ever, ever go, go fucking go to Vegas, go get a hooker, go to church, go to a temple or mosque, get on your knees, go work at a soup kitchen, go take whatever extreme action you can take before you ever even think about taking your own life. And for God's sakes, don't ever go and take someone else's life. You know, how many guys are sitting in prison right now for the rest of their lives? Because unlike me, I'll never know if my girlfriend and that guy ended up hooking up. I bet you a lot of money they did. But what if I was one of those guys that carried a gun? And what if I had my own motorcycle? And what if I would have went back to where his apartment was or not apartment house was? And what if I walked in and I saw them having sex, right? What would I have done with that gun? Right. What would I have done with that gun? Mm. Now, that guy went on to um, sober up and and do some cool things. That girl went on to get sober and have some amazing children. And she eventually became a therapist and she's helping helping young people. But in that moment, in a knee jerk reaction, you know, if I walked in and I saw my, my girlfriend and a guy and, and I was fucked up, chances are I would have taken both of their lives and I'd be rotting away in prison. So I don't know why I, I got off. I, I just, I, I've always felt like I've always wanted to get that message across that no matter what the fuck is going on, pause, take a deep breath, realize it's transitory. And here's, and here's what's crazy. She's an amazing woman. Uh, but if you put a gun to my head now, I, I wouldn't want to spend an afternoon with her. Okay. And I'm not putting her down because here's the deal. Now that she's sober, she wouldn't want to spend an afternoon with me either. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not for one another. Okay. And I can even take it a step further. I had a relationship with an incredible, incredible, one of the greatest human beings on the planet, a uh, woman for nine years sober. I'm talking about both of us were sober. We had one of the most incredible relationships ever. After nine years, we broke up. Same thing. If you put a gun to her head right now, she wouldn't want to be with me. And if I put it, you put a gun to my, I wouldn't want to be with her. But in those moments, we think, but I'm never going to be okay without him. I'm never going to be okay without her. If I lose this job, I'm totally fucked. My life's going to be over, but it's never true. It's, it's, it's just never true. Getting fired from the one decent job I was ever able to get back in 2004 to 2007, getting fired from that job, it was like the only decent job I ever had in my life. And when I lost it, I thought I was going to die and be destitute, whatever. Getting fired from that put me here mm. in my own beautiful office, in my own beautiful home with my own beautiful cats and my own beautiful girlfriend and my thriving business and my best-selling book and like my worst moments most of the time ended up being the catalyst for the greatest things to ever happen in my life. Absolutely. And that's a beautiful lesson. I think for people that, you know, there are a lot of people struggling out there, um, you know, mental health, you know, maybe there's this obviously huge collective transitioning going on and for, to hear it from someone that was in such a down and out place, literally drug overdose, and coming from you, um, what is, you know, some advice or some tools or some things that you can give people that might be listening to this, that might be struggling, maybe not, you know, as deep into hell as you were, 
but maybe they lost their job, lost their, their, their partner, um, whatever it may be, how do they begin that healing journey? And what was that healing journey like for you? I mean, just, I'd say surrender, 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 surrender. And don't think of surrender as a dirty word. Think of surrender as what it is, which is joining the winning team. You know, just, you, you, you let it go and you're going to be a magnet for whatever it is you're going to be a magnet for. So if you're, if you're Debbie Downer and you're depressed and fucking fucking government, fucking Trump and fucking Biden and fuck this and fuck it. If you're going to be that person, you're going to attract that into your life. But if you're going to be that person that is like the pendulum swings left, the pendulum swings right. I really don't have much control over it, right? Vote if you think that that's important. My personal opinion is if voting was so important, they probably wouldn't let us do it. I think the powers... <laughs> I love that. I think the powers that's that so good. Be, I think the I think the powers that be have been in control for a long time, whether it's Democrat or Republican. And here's what I know definitively. They don't go off and fight wars typically, right? Some of the old time politicians did. I think the first George Bush did, but in general, politicians don't go fight wars. Politicians' kids don't go fight wars, right? Their mm-hmm. kids go to the best schools and are afforded the best opportunities and are, are through nepotism, are granted these lofty positions. And I'm not talking about Biden's son right now, by the way. When I say that, people often think that I'm talking about him. That dude has way more struggles than most people could ever dream of having. That dude has gone through more challenges, losing his brother and losing his mom and all that shit. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not defending him either because he got some amazing multi-million dollar contracts that he never in a million years wouldn't have gotten if it weren't if his dad weren't Joe Biden. But you know, look at the Obamas. They're worth a couple hundred million dollars now. Look at the look at the Bush family and their dealings with oil and the Saudis and all that stuff. Politicians, I don't trust any of them. I don't, I don't want to hang out with any of them. Um but I also don't want to spend any of my time bashing them because I become a magnet for, for whatever my vibrational frequency is at. So if I get fired from my job and I know that this is easy for me to say now sitting here with my life so incredible, but if I get fired from my job and I run out and I get as a man thinketh, think and grow rich, the secret even, something as cheesy and as silly as the secret if I go and I get that stuff and I just start with a voracious appetite consuming those principles and I get on my knees and I develop gratitude and every day I start with the basics. God, thank you for the roof over my head. Whether it's a homeless shelter or whether it's a multi-million dollar house in Zilker Park, thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my sobriety if it's applicable, right? Those were... The, the just the the mantras that I had to develop in my state of destitution when I was newly sober, right? The other thing is you got to let go of this premise that, well, I'm 25, I'm 45, I'm 55. I should have a career. I should have a house. I should have a wife. I should have... You should have exactly what you have because you and you alone are entirely responsible for what's going on in your life both good and bad. And how do I know that? Because I'm entirely responsible for everything going on in my, you know, in my life, good and bad. Now there is a 
massive amount of grace. I'm going to say God. I hope that's not a dirty word to your listeners. And if it is, just say universe. There is a massive, massive amount of grace that has showered, has you know fallen down upon me. I think I received that grace because I was willing to get on my knees and and pray and be grateful and do my little walking gratitude lists and get into a positive mindset and and do to the best of my ability to be kind and loving towards anybody and everybody I can. And I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, when I was newly sober, I was in 12-step programs and I had a sponsor. And I don't know if you know about 12-step programs, but they pass around this basket and then people put money in the basket. And I thought, that's so fucking hypocritical because they start out the 12-step meeting saying that this is for fun and for free. And now they're fucking hitting me up for a dollar. Like this is, I didn't like it at all. Um, I felt like I was in a cult. Um, I felt like it was a bunch of weird, you know, people, um, which, you know, my ego at the time, of course, that's what I thought. Um, so they would pass around this basket and, and the basket came around and I went to hand it to my sponsor who was quite wealthy. I mean, had a Porsche and had a house and, um, and he hands it back to me and he goes, put in a dollar or no, he goes, uh, put in some money. And I was like, what? And he goes, put in some money. I'm like, you put in some money, you're rich. And he goes, Khalil, put in some money. And I'm like, I'm fucking homeless. He goes, didn't I give you a hundred bucks the other day for detail on my car? I said, yeah. He goes, you still have any of that money? I said, yeah. And he goes, put in some money. And just to shut him up, really, I pulled out a dollar and I begrudgingly threw it in the basket. And he goes, "Uh uh-uh. I'm like, uh uh-uh, what? He goes, put in two. I'm like, fuck you, Robbie. And he goes, fuck you. Listen to me. Put in two. And I said, Robbie, everyone puts in a fucking dollar. He said, I put in more. And you're going to put in more because you're going to show the universe. He didn't like saying God. You're going to show the universe that you trust it. You're going to put in an extra dollar showing the universe, I'm going to say God, that I believe that abundance and prosperity is coming my way. Now I did it again to shut him up. And then, you know, I went on and went to meetings on my own and I started almost spitefully, almost to prove him wrong. At first, I started to put in $2 after a while, it started to feel good. And even after a longer while, I began to do it without making sure other people could see me doing it. Because there was also a component of spiritual pride that crept in when I would put in a little extra. I would want, if there was any cool people or cute girls around, to see me doing that. After I finally even let go of that part of it and just thought to myself, God loves me. I'm one of God's children. I deserve abundance. I accept abundance. I'm going to show through my tithing that I'm willing to receive abundance and that I trust the universe. I trust God that abundance is coming to me. Look, is it a coincidence that all of a sudden people started offering me jobs, washing their cars and and walking their dogs and teaching their kids how to boogie board? I don't think so. I think I created those opportunities through a certain mindset and I let go of my poverty mentality that had been impregnated into me by my parents. Mm, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. And it's the difference between a scarcity mindset and abundance mindset. When you're hanging mm. from like, there's not enough, 
then you're, uh, like you said, as within, so without the inner dialogue, the inner energy that you're holding, if you don't think there's enough out there, then how are you going to find it? But if you're openly giving it, um, it definitely comes back. And it's like this secret to the universe that it's really hard to trust until you start really letting go and experiencing it. And you're talking about God or, or source or spirit or the universe, whatever word that you use. I used to have a lot of resistance to the word God, except through my yeah. own spiritual practice and actually discovering my own connection with that greater power that be the, the creation energy of this experience of life. Talk about your connection to God and that journey from, you know, being an addict and, you know, your belief around God and spirituality then. And then obviously this experience you had of, of becoming and learning how to be more abundant and your connection with God now and whatever that might look like. My, my connection now with God is at this present moment is very much of father and son. Um, and I'm just talking about right now in this moment, that was definitely not the case. My first many, many years, um, of sobriety or, you know, I don't even like using that word because there's like a negative connotation to it, but I would say the first 10 years after getting off the drink and the drug, the, the, my God of my understanding was very much a woman. Um, I even in one of my, um, sabbaticals to India, when I spent a month over there chanting and going into the different temples and whatever, I found this beautiful statue of the goddess Lakshmi and, um, against, you know, what I was taught as a kid in my Catholicism, you know, no worshiping of, you know, pagan idolatry or whatever. I don't even know if I was praying to like a woman with big boobs. Um, I wish I had the statue to show you. It's so cool. Um, but I, God in, in the beginning, God was a woman to me. It was the only God that I could accept because I had so much resentment towards my dad, so much resentment towards men that had harmed me and sexually abused me. And just, I was an awkward kid to begin with bad at sports I'm shaped funny. I kind of, I, I have like short legs. I have a long torso and I have a massive skull. Kids made fun of me in school. Um, I never got picked for sports. So there was already this feeling of, of being different and, and being ostracized. But I also was a target because I was desperate for attention and approval and gross, disgusting men. One of them who was my swim coach, who I trusted and I loved, um, grossly took advantage of that. Um, so I hated men and I still have some issues around men and I'm learning to trust more. Um, but God in the beginning was a woman, God, now it's more of a father and son relationship. Now it's like finally having like the father that I've always wanted kind of with a mom mixed in, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, it's definitely not the God of anybody else's religion, but it's for me, I have to keep it simple because if I start thinking, you know, I have a cross on today, tomorrow it might be a Buddha, the next day it might be a Jewish star, the next day it might be Lakshmi or Krishna or whatever. I love the the symbolisms of religion. I love the teachings of Jesus Christ. I love the story of him dying on the cross for our sins. And I am not denying any of that. And I think it's absolutely beautiful. But I also don't want to deny the teachings of Buddha. And I don't want to deny the teachings in the Bhagavad Gita and Krishna and you know, my, my dad was a Muslim, so I guess technically I'm half Muslim. Uh, my mom was born a Jew, but raised Catholic. So I was raised Catholic, Jesuit Catholic. Um, I don't fuck when you go to church with you, I would go, but I would also go to the Hare Krishna temple with you. And 
probably even enjoy the Hare Krishna temple uh, much more so than I would any type of church just because yeah. it's fun. Um, so God, God, it's just a personal relationship that I nurture every day. Um, if I started calling you every morning, every afternoon and every evening, and just having some very transparent, simple conversations with you within a short period of time, you and I would have a serious, serious bond, right? Mm. You would know my, you would know my ouchies, you would know my vulnerabilities, you would know my dreams and my aspirations. I do, I do the same thing with God. I keep it super simple. I, I, I try to the best of my ability to do a walking gratitude list. Um, I try to the best of my ability before every meal to give thanks. And I just talk to God, you know, um, my prayers aren't that desperate anymore. When I was first sober and first like maneuvering, um, <laughs> poverty, <laughs> when I was first maneuvering poverty and humility, my prayers were very like, you know, my, my hands were gripped like this and it was, you know, God, please, God, please. Can you be with me now? God, please. Can you hold my hand? God, please. I'm scared right now. Can you please walk with me? Can you please get me through this? My prayers now are more of like my hands are folded nicely. And <laughs> every now and then I can peek down at my Rolex or whatever I'm wearing and, and say, God, thank you for my amazing life. And that, you know, and having deep gratitude because of the life you went through, right? Yes, yes. And I think it's, you know, I think it's, uh, I think that's one of the big issues with our, with our culture and society now is that we put so often put God in a box and that's what all these religions do. And it's like, you, you have to choose one right way when they're all really fingers pointing at the moon, right? They're all trying to explain this, this ineffable experience of life. And I think everybody innately has, you know, whether you're conscious of it or not, this deep desire to know God. And a lot of times through our suffering, kind of like you hitting the rock bottom, it forces us into looking at something greater than the self in order to get through. And I love the fact that you, you keep it simple. And I think it really doesn't really matter what God you worship, what religion you follow, as long as you develop that intimate connection with the divine, with the thing that's something that's greater than yourself, because that's really where the power is. It's not about, you know, following the ideology or the dogmatic belief system and I'm right and you're wrong. It's how can we open our minds to the mystery of life and be in awe of it. And with so much suffering, I know you've experienced a lot of suffering and, and wounding in your own life. What do you think, you know, with this idea of God and creation, what is the larger purpose of why we are here? I believe the larger purpose of why we are here is for the evolution of our soul and to enjoy ourselves and love each other. I, I really don't think it's any more complicated than that. And I, and I think that if we allow our egos to convince us that we have cornered the market on God and we know definitively who God is and what God is, which is sort of a joke because the purpose of life is to reach towards your divinity, reach, not grab, reach. Mm -hmm. So I'm reaching towards my divinity and I'm doing the best that I can to behave the way I'm supposed to behave and to be the man that God intended me to be, right? Mm -hmm. But but if I allow my ego to convince me that I've cornered the market and I have grabbed onto my divinity and I know my divinity's name and or, or gender or absolute rules, then we get what's happening over in the Middle East right now. 
Mm. You've got two different sides with two different religions who claim many different things. And through their arrogance and through their, I mean, some of it's beautiful. I, I do love the fact that, you know, my grandma prayed five times a day and I loved how she would wash each hand and wash each nostril. And it was so like devout and so beautiful. Um, I love, I love how in, in the Jewish religion, like family is everything and they help one another. And, and, but when we start to believe that we are different and we are better and the other side is not as good as us or the enemy, we're fucked. Mm-hmm. We're totally, we're, we're totally fucked. No one is going to, no one is going to convince me that whatever created all of this created a certain sect of people that are better and they know the truth and we don't know the truth. You know, I had people tell me over and over and over again that my grandma was going to go to hell because she didn't accept Jesus as her Lord and savior. I have felt and known the love of Christ in my heart. I have felt the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing about that love and that grace that's going to send my grandma to hell or you or anyone for that matter, for that matter. Yeah. I where just, did I, I don't comes know. from? Like, cause, cause I've, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian household and I had the same questions, a lot of resistance to the teachings, a lot of questions. I think the biggest the biggest enemy to especially the Christian faith is the question why, right? Cause they don't have a lot of answers to this. And one of the big things that I wrestled with at a young age was like, so, you know, if I was born in India with a different religion, like millions yes. of people, talk what I always to, say. they're all just going to hell. Like what, what kind yeah. of God would, if God created everything, why would God create people just to like, not even have an opportunity to know him. And it's these like yeah. simple questions that really, I had a lot of resistance to, and that's why I had a lot of resistance to the word God. I had a lot of resistance to Jesus, to the Bible. And until I went on my own path of self-discovery and self-realization and opening my mind to Eastern philosophy and connecting to God through nature and actually starting to connect with what that means to me, I really, the reason I kind of circled back into Christianity to understand it is because I had this deep desire to reconnect with my dad. And my dad's very much in this dogmatic Christian belief system. And I wanted to connect with him in that way. And so I started, I need to learn the terminology that he uses. I need to start using Jesus and, and Christ. And because all of the teachings, once you start learning about all these different religions, they're all very, very similar, right? It's all about love. It's connection. Yeah. It's compassion. And I started diving back into the story of Jesus and the teachings and reading different books and different perspectives and different, like more open, non-dogmatic interpretations of who Jesus was as a mystic, as a embodiment of love and presence. And I, I began to really fall in love with Jesus and really connect with yeah. who he was as a man. And yeah. it's been a really beautiful journey to circle back and now have conversations with my dad. And I find it very fascinating that people are, they, they, they attach more to the doctrine and the stories that were created around Jesus and his teachings rather than who Jesus was as a man and what he actually was teaching, which was hanging out with the scum of the earth and being present and being loving to everyone. And it's just like the actual Christian faith has lost that. Where do you like, why is that? Why is there such a disconnect? Because of man, because, because of our egos, because we, we, ha- we have this desperate desire that we have to figure things out and that we know better. And well, it says it in the Bible. Oh, okay, what does that mean? It, it says it in the Bible. Oh, okay. 
but what about the Quran? And what about the Old Testament? And what about the Bhagavad Gita? Yeah, and what about what about just the fact that what what about the fact that all of that stuff was written thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, and translated from Aramaic into whatever, into whatever, into Old English, into like. You don't think stuff was lost in translation? You don't think that maybe possibly these evil men that want to control us and control the world didn't take parts of it and craft it and fashion it into a way where there would be separation and disconnect from other races of people and where we would be obedient sheep and we would fit into the mold and where we would do what we were told and meanwhile, they get to do whatever they want to do. And, and I, don't, I don't like that stuff. And I'm, so, and I'm so torn because I see somebody as cool as Joel Olstein. I think, you know, the guy's a legend. The guy inspires so many people. And he's handsome and wonderful. And he's got this beautiful wife. But the people that are putting the money in the basket to give to his church they're also buying him private jets and mansions and all that other stuff. And that's the part where for me, I have to stay out of it. I, ha I have to stay out of it. I, I, I have to avoid religion like the plague and double up on my effort to just reconnect to God. Now, I love Jesus. I talk to Jesus. This is not something I would really ever share with anybody, even one-on-one. -on -one. It's my own personal thing, but we're on the subject. Um, I believe that the teachings of Jesus Christ are the most profound and applicable to my life. I, I just don't, no one's going to ever convince me that my dad, who's an atheist and is going to burn in hell or that my grandma, who was a Muslim or that my mom, um, well, my mom was actually pretty into Jesus and pretty devout, but, um, you know, they, I, I was in India and I have a lot of Indian, in fact, my neighbor's Indian. I, ha, I have a lot of Indian friends and, you know, they're very much into Krishna and, and Lakshmi and and um, and all the different deities. No one's going to convince me that those people are going to, a billion people are going to go to hell uh, because they don't say a certain phrase in a certain way. Like, grow up, man. Sorry. That's, yeah, not, that's, not, that's not for me. Yeah, totally. I agree. I'm right there with you. Um, you know, I think it's, it's been used, like you said, for this, this mass control and, and power over and, you know, keeping us divided is easier to control the population. And I think the biggest thing that, you know, the Christian faith uses is this, um, this, this basically this, this ultimate fear, which is and, and the fear of the unknown, which is death. Right. And so Eternal they, use, damnation. they use this story of if, if you believe this one little thing, then you're saved, which is another thing of absolving you of all responsibility of living this life, which a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm saved. I just give it to Jesus, which, which absolves them of the responsibility of doing their own healing work in connection to God, which is really fascinating. And they use that fear of death and eternity to basically make them believe this thing because they don't want to burn in hell. And I had that belief. It's very deep seated when you grow up into that. Cause if yeah. I'm in a car accident tomorrow, I don't want to go to hell for eternity. So I hang on to that belief and it's really, really challenging for me to let it go. And I remember the first time I was able to really let that go. I told my dad, like, no, I don't believe that. Even though for 10 years, I, I would tell anybody that I was talking to, like, no, I don't believe that. But it was still this deep, deep story of foundation of, of who I am and the way I viewed reality. And when I finally let that go, it was like 
the actual love of Jesus and the actual love of God was able to find its way into me, which is a really beautiful experience. Mm. So let's, let's talk about death because I think, you know, even in our society and culture, death is such a taboo thing, especially here in the U S and I don't think people confront their death enough. I mean, you've obviously had a near death experience leaving your body and stuff, but I don't think until you really confront the fact that your life is impermanent, you're here for a finite amount of time and you're going to die that you can't really fully live until you confront that because you're just going to keep going through life in this routine. I think that's where a lot of people are stuck. So let's talk a little bit about, about your perspective of death because you've actually, you know, flatlined and died. Died. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think happens when you die? And, you know, this whole idea uh, around death and, and how it relates to this experience of life. Well, I'd like to preface it with, 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 first of all, yes, you're right. Most people believe that this is dress rehearsal, right? Most people just walk around and they have this mindset that someday I'm gonna, someday I'm gonna, someday I'm gonna, and you're not, if you're not doing it now, you're not doing it. My friend, Todd Bazinski, one of the greatest, most incredible human beings to ever live was a, was a, a big Polish kid back in, in uh, Ohio where I grew up football player ended up being a, <clears throat> a welder and a pipe fitter. I was a little guy, five foot seven, and I was amazing at starting fights. The problem is I'm terrible at fighting. I'm not tough at all, but you I have a big mouth. Yeah. I did. I, I'm a rooster. I was born in, in 69. I'm a rooster. So I'm this cocky little shit and I'm just constantly shooting my mouth off. And then there's guys that are my size or much bigger, most much bigger, it would beat the living shit out of me if they had access to me. And Todd was one of my protectors and he, uh, he, he protected me all through, all through high school and after until I left California um, at 22 years old, 21, 22 years old. Todd and I stayed in touch. The only time Todd ever left the town that we were born in was when I dragged him to Woodstock in 94. I didn't ask him. I just took him. I bought him a ticket. I showed up at his doorstep. I said, let's go, motherfucker. Call work. And, you know, he missed Friday and Monday and, and we went. The other time was spring break, our sophomore year. And um, after high school, he went on to be a pipe fitter and work in factories. And, and after I left for California, he would always say to me, I'm going to come out there and join you. I'm going to come out there and join you. And then eventually it became like, I'm going to come out there and visit you. I'm going to come spend a couple months out there. And then it became like, I'm going to ride my Harley out there one day and spend a couple of months driving up and down the coast. And I think I know, I think, you know, where I'm going with this story. Um, Todd never made it. And last year Todd died very suddenly and at 51 years old, my age. And um, Todd never got to do all those things that he always talked about doing because his work became a prison. His relationships became a prison his belief system became a prison, you know, his politics became a prison, everything became a prison and he never went anywhere. And most people are like that. Most people are locked into their belief systems, their religion, their politics, their job. Um, many of them hate their job, but they just stay at their job. They're too fearful to start anything else. And long time ago, I was being taught by this Lama from, um, from Tibet. He's one of the eight Rinpoches that are still alive on the planet. One is the Dalai Lama, one is the Panchen Lama who's in captivity, and one is Ken Rinpoche. And Ken Rinpoche was my teacher. And he would talk to me about a tradition that they would do 
where they would drink tea before they went to bed. And then they would turn the cup upside down, signifying death, signifying the end of life, right? That life is that brief, that it's like, it's good, it's here, you're dead, right? So what are you going to do about that? And for me, um, there's this artist, kind of famous artist named Sage Vaughn. And I was at his studio and I saw this painting um, up on his wall. I'm not sure if you can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's death and that's Mm. death waving at me. And this is, you know, this is my office. This is um, a lot of the different things, iconoclastic images that have inspired me over the years. And, you know, little, this is the New York Times article on me, just little silly stuff. But when I walk into my office every day, there's death going, hey, Khalil, you're going to die. What the fuck are you going to do in the meantime? Because it might be this afternoon, it might be tomorrow, it might be in a week, it might be in a year. What are you going to do knowing that death is coming? And the answer for me is I'm going to do anything and everything I can to enjoy myself, to bring health and wellness to people, to elevate the consciousness of the planet through micronutrients and superfoods and acai bowls and you know, lately I've really come to realize how blessed and how grace, how graced I am to be able to bring in these cacao beans from the jungles of Ecuador and bring in this maca from up in the up in the mountains in Peru. And these are all things that I went and sourced myself to bring in this mythical matcha from the Kagoshima region where the samurai once ruled, and to bring that here and to be able to serve that to your beautiful wife and to you and to people's kids and to you know, just people in the community, every community that we're in, I get to be the catalyst to bring that stuff in and to, to make people healthy and happy and to put a smile on their face through some of the best customer service they've ever received in a happy, bright, vibrant place. I, I'm not sure if you noticed the love, heal and inspire neon sign when you walk in and the be here now sticker on the floor when you walk in and just the books and the crystals and all of that stuff together is my little tiny way of elevating the consciousness of the planet. And that's what I'm going to do with my time. I don't want to do anything else. I you know, write my little books. I got one that was a bestseller. The other one is just starting to gain some traction. Um, I'll write a third book about fame and social media and all the stuff that I experienced living in California, mostly Malibu, um, and, and being around all that there, if you scroll back down on my Instagram, maybe 30 or so posts, you'll start to see some really pathetic, just pretentious, shallow pictures of me on private jets and me on mega yachts and me with famous people. And a, a big part of me wants to delete all that shit because it makes me so sad to think how shallow and pretentious I am, or I was, and I'm working on getting better. Um, I got lost. I got lost living out there. And I got lost with, it wasn't even my fortune and fame. I was, I was riding the coattails of other people who I had met, um, who had private jets and stayed on giant mega yachts and went to the South of France every summer. And I'm not saying I won't ever go back to some of that stuff because Some of it was really fun, but the shit that I was posting on Instagram, the humble bragging that I was doing was just fucking pathetic and gross. So 
that's not what this life is about for me. What this, what this life is about for me is continuing to open more of these stores, hiring more of these amazing people that I get to work with, providing them with jobs in a drug and alcohol-free environment where every individual employee gets a free meal every day that they work. And that's who I am. And that's what I am. And that's what I do. And I got to tell you, I fucking love it. I love it. I love to get to do what I get to do. I love the people that I work with. I love my friends. I love my house. I love my life. I don't want to do anything differently. So my intentions finally became aligned with my purpose. And when my intentions and my passion aligned with my purpose, my life just took off and and doors began to open for me. But if you go back to the Khalil of 30 years ago, it was, well, I've got to become famous. Well, I'm going to be a rock star. Well, I'm going to be an actor. Well, look, now I have my SAG card and now I have this agent and now I'm in this rock and roll band and look at these cool songs that we wrote and I'm going to be famous and we're going to go on tour for Lollapalooza and so-and-so's dad is the head of the William Morris agency and he's going to help me. Like All that stupid shit, for what? For what? I'm going to, I'm going to become famous for what? And especially at that time, with my appetite for drugs and alcohol, oh, yeah, that would have been wonderful. I ended up fucking dead as it was, you know, being a furniture maker and a car washer. But what if I finished that record? Or what if I would have actually went to auditions, not just held on to my SAG card like I was so cool because I got my SAG card? What if I would have achieved some of, you know, that fame? I'd be fucking dead. And I wouldn't get to experience what I'm experiencing now, which is meeting amazing people like you, meeting amazing. I mean, Austin is the coolest fucking city in the world, in my opinion. I don't. Are you from here? Uh, no, I moved there just before you did. I, I lived there moved there probably two years ago. I just bought a house about a okay. year ago. A lot of people okay, are moving. Yeah. Austin's really special. I I'm so happy here, and like I'm looking out at my neighbors' houses right now, but like. I know my neighbors and I know my neighbors' names. And my neighbors have literally walked from across the street or walked from over there and literally said, like, if you ever need me to house sit your cats, or if you ever run out of something and you're cooking and you need anything, or like if you know what if you want my daughter to, you know, watch your cats while you're out of town or just whatever. Like my point is is that in Ohio, I knew that because that's how people in Ohio are. But in California, I spent 29 years there and everyone's got a 30 foot wall surrounding their house. Yeah. And the only time I ever met my neighbor in Malibu was when my tree broke in a storm and broke through their fence and landed in their yard. The old man came over and said, Hey, I'm, I'm your neighbor. Please get that fucking tree out of my yard. Right. But yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know whoever, I was just going to drop a bunch of names because I'm still fucking shallow and pretentious. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know a lot of my neighbors until I opened up Sun Life Organics. Now, once I opened up Sun Life Organics, then I fed people. I was nice to them. I didn't ask them for anything. Then they started saying like, come on tour with us. And you know, or, or somebody would say like, Hey, we're going to the Cannes film festival. And, you know, why don't you fly out the week after? And we have this massive yacht and you can bring your friends or that stuff started to happen. And rather than, rather than just really enjoy it and be in the moment, 
it, it, it was, it was all about like getting the right fucking selfie on the jet ski or getting the right selfie on the jet or getting the right selfie on the helicopter. And I think I probably spent 70% of my time all over the world worried about what people were going to think about me. Because again, that shallow, pathetic, insecure ego that constantly wants to take over my life. In this life, because we're talking about life and death now, the ego, like Ryan Holiday says, is the enemy. The ego is the enemy. Death is coming. What happens when we die? I mean, I, I don't, Personally, I don't believe in death. I don't think we get off that easy. I think yeah. that I think that this has been going on forever, and I think this will go on forever. And in this version of life, our job is to be the man or the woman that God intended us to be, to evolve and to become kinder and to become more loving and to become more giving and to serve. And when I read many years ago and I was reading all the spiritual stuff and someone said to serve is to rule, I was like, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> it's the truth. Mm. Now I know it. Now I know it to be the truth. To serve is to rule. Today I'm going to go out and to the best of my ability, I'm going to be as kind and as loving and as nurturing to everybody I meet. I'm going to smile at people. I'm going to acknowledge people. I'm going to help people. I will engage in certain charitable behavior and I'll keep that to myself because that's the way it's supposed to be. If I go and I give a homeless guy 20 bucks and then I call you up and go, dude, I just gave this guy, homeless guy, 20 bucks. I'm like, yeah, he's going to go get a meal with it. But like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Just right. Do. It's all energy. Mm. It's not my 20 bucks. The 20 bucks was given to me through me serving. Right. My, my, our profit margins at Sun Life are fucking minuscule. They're tiny. But when you do $15 million a year in sales, a, lo, a, a tiny amount of a massive amount of sales ends up being pretty, you know, pretty decent money to where I'm able to eat what I want and not focus on menu prices. And I'm able to fly if, you know, if the flight's longer than a couple of hours, I'm able to upgrade to business or, or first class sometimes if I'm feeling fancy. And my life is amazing and it's, and it's charmed and it's wonderful. Yeah, man. Beautiful. I'm, I'm so proud of you and the journey that you got, that you've been on. And there's so many questions I have uh, for you, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I think it's fascinating that you went from really not wanting to give $2 into the bucket to now just really just freely giving to the world, knowing that you are in this abundance. And I think it's also really beautiful that, you know, a lot of people may be down and out or they want to find that success because they think that's going to make them happy. And even for you, you found success that most people can only dream of and you're still continuing to show up and, and realize there's more growth to be had just because I made it and I'm, I'm successful. There's still this inner journey of how can I continue to show up with more love, more equanimity, more peace and not attach to my success and flaunt that to the world. And I think that's really beautiful. And, you know, I'd love to have you on again to kind of dive deeper into all the, um, reading between all the lines on how you got from 
overdosing on drugs to flying in private jets and meeting all those people, but I will be respectful of your time. If you want to share maybe the name of your book where people can, uh, so people can read it to kind of dive deeper into your story. Um, if you're interested in, in checking out Sun Life, um, there's, they're in Malibu, LA and Austin now, correct? Yes. Uh, we have one up in Marin County, there, uh, Manhattan beach, greater Los Angeles area. There's like 10 of them. Um, Austin, Texas on South Congress, um, my, uh, South beach, Miami opens up in a few months. Um, beyond that, I'm getting all kinds of offers from all kinds of landlords all across the country that will, are willing to do just about anything to bring us in. Mm. And my second book is called remembering to live, um, remembering to live, I forgot to die is the memoir and it's dark and people love a Cinderella story. Let's be honest. Right. It is fucking cool to hear about somebody that was totally fucked and is now living this really big life. And there are probably some people out there that got inspired by all of my silly little pretentious posts. Unfortunately, most of the attention I got was either you know, girls from mostly LA DMing me saying we should hang out. And I'm like, for what? Like we should hang out because I was on my friend's jet. Like that's not where I want to spend my time and my energy. Right. The other attention that I got from it was very, very negative. I got, I got brutally attacked, um, in some weird, cancel culture type of way from some disgruntled employees from like six, seven years ago. Um, it was silly. It was nothing. There was no there, there. It doesn't matter because in the court of public opinion, if somebody says something negative about you and then somebody backs up that story and people are kind of sitting around praying for your demise, right? Because there's the other side of, you know, we love a Cinderella story, right? because you're evolving and you're growing and you got this beautiful wife and you've got this career that's evolving and same with me. But for those people that hate themselves and hate life and think it's Biden's fault or it's Trump's fault or it's this person's fault or it's that person's fault, those people are looking for targets for their animosity. Those people are looking to hate on somebody. And if you're going to be a fucking moron and go on Instagram and post yourself with all these models and all this stupid shit, those people are going to find you and they're going to come after you with a vengeance and they're going to attack you with everything they got. And you can't even in today's day and age, you can't defend yourself because if you defend yourself, you're victim shaming, mm. whatever, whatever the fuck that is. Right. So, um, I don't know. My posts now are more genuine and more heartfelt. Um, <laughs> having said that, I'm itching to get out of here and go to some white sand beach and <laughs> lay on, lay on the sand. So, so be prepared for some, <laughs> yeah, be, be prepared for some douchey, pretentious pictures coming up. <laughs> but yeah, but what's my your Instagram? Amazon. It's Khalil Rafadi or at Khalil Rafadi, uh, K H A L I L R A F. A-T-I, at Khalil Rafati. Awesome. And then check out the book if you want to dive deeper into the story. And if you want a really delicious smoothie, go to a Sun Life Organics near you. Looks like they're going to be opening up all over the country soon. Really stoked for yeah, you. And if you see me, if you see me, grab me. If you're listening to this podcast and you go to Sun Life and you see me, walk up to me and say, what's this podcast cost again? Quantum Qu Coffee? Quantum Coffee, baby. Yeah, walk up to me and say, I heard you on quantum coffee 
and it's a pleasure to meet you and I will treat you to whatever you want. That that's my offer. And I mean that sincerely. And don't, don't DM me later and go, well, you were talking to somebody and I didn't want to interrupt you. Let me let, let me let you know right here, right now. I'm always going to be fucking talking to people (laughs) because it's my greatest joy. And it's the only thing I know how to do. I don't know how to build things construction. I don't know how to type. I don't, dude, I have your name in my phone. I spelled your name J O W. (laughs) Jow. I'm going to go J O W J O W H A W L E Y A U D R Y. What is that? Yeah. Audrey. I don't know. I don't know what that last part is. You got my last name, right? Which is surprising because that's what most people get wrong. I can't spell. It's not feigned humility. I can't type. I couldn't figure out how to get on the the World Wide Web this morning to do this. I couldn't figure out how to do my headphones. I couldn't figure out to do anything. Please let me leave you guys with this. And this is truly my sincerest um, offer to anyone. No matter what you're going through, no matter how bad you think your life sucks, you can do and be anything. That, that's my promise to you. Because if a moron like me can do it, anybody can do it. Beautiful, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. And, and for the free smoothies, he's not kidding. The first time I met him, he gave me one, one of those free smoothies. And, and they're, they're not cheap. They're really, I mean, they're really high quality ingredients, right? Um, and they are delicious. So definitely do that. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. If you enjoyed this podcast or it resonated with you in any way, um, make sure you subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends, leave a review that would really go a long way in helping me grow the channel. And if you are a premium subscriber, on Supercast, stick around because we are going to get a little bonus uh, ending here with Khalil asking him what his secret to the universe is. And if you're not a premium subscriber, go into the show notes, just $7 a month. You get premium content like these extended episodes. Uh, Thank you so much for the support. And until next time, peace.